to me, there's something about killing an elephant, killing a rhinoceros for their ivory, yeah. leaving the carcasses to go and just die, and to profiteer off of that. And especially profiteer for the most ridiculous motives. Welcome to My Way, a podcast that shares the stories of people who are doing life their way. Listen along as we explore what works, what doesn't, and the experience that happens no matter which path we choose. I'm your host, Sunny Collins. Thanks for listening. Sunny here. Welcome to episode 20 of My Way. This is the final part of an interesting conversation I had with a visitor to Grayton. If you haven't listened to episode 18 and 19, I encourage you to go back and do that first. And round about the 20-minute mark, you will hear a second person chime in, the infamous Wim Brown, who lured Tommy back to Africa. To note, this episode is not family-friendly as it contains several F-bombs. I think I even dropped one at one point. Tommy Sendrick is a former DEA agent and now works along with Wim Brown and another Graytonian, Alistair Nelson, at Focus Conservation Solutions. Tommy serves as the Director of International Law Enforcement Operations. Enjoy the conversation. <laughs> so Wim goes out on his own and he decides he's going to start this nonprofit. And we're going to use the skills we developed at the DEA and working in the bilateral investigation unit. And we're going to focus on illicit wildlife trafficking. That's what Wim decides he's going to do. He's going to look at... You know, Why the, that? Fuck people. Animals are more important sometimes. And I, I've had my... Phil, I think women had his fill of people, and I can tell you I have. Mm-hmm. I fucking hate people. Um, I've learned to have very low expectations because I don't want to be let down. I'm tired of the system. I'm tired of the system of the United States government. I'm tired of the system of the DEA. I'm tired of the system of the Department of Justice. I'm tired of the news. I mm-hmm. care about my family mm-hmm. and that's and my animals mm-hmm. and, and my friends. Yeah. So Wim goes down this road and he calls me a couple times and he says, you're going to come to work for me. I said, no, I'm fucking not. I'm not coming back to Africa. Done. And I, I went through a lot of ups and downs during this last year, dark places where, you know, people would say, oh, don't you want to do this or don't you want to do that? I was just like, fuck all this. I was so sick of it all. My world, I started hiking a lot. I started hiking the foothills of the Appalachian Trail near me. I started hiking um, uh, Sugarloaf Mountain near me, doing some of the battlefields of Gettysburg and Monocacy with the Civil War. And I knew I did not not want to have an adventurous life, but I knew I was just really not interested in being, being a cop anymore. I was listening to a podcast one evening, uh, the Joe Rogan podcast, and he had a guy named Jesse Eitzler on, and I was down my basement. I'll never forget, I was, or Sunday afternoon, I was, I was doing bullets. I, I, I do my own reloading for my rifles. Mm-hmm. So I'm down my basement and I'm weighing out lead and I'm, you know, wow. to put gunpowder to put in my cases and I'm, 
working on all this is stuff. that normal do a lot of people do that or is it well, kind of like rolling your own cigarettes or it's just kind of one of those things i think guys who like to shoot do in the shooting world it's not uncommon to probably 90 percent of the people listening to your podcast are gonna go he's fucking weird you know <laughs> I mean, I've never heard of somebody making their own, but you're the first. Yeah, so yeah. a lot of people do it, but you're in the shooting world, okay? Right. So I'm down there doing that, and, and Jesse Eitzler said, I'm 50 years old. And I go, whoa, I'm 50 years old. Jesse Eitzler said, if I live to be the same age of a male in this world before I die, that means I have 27 more summers left. Right. And I sat there quietly, and I went, what the fuck am I doing? And I called Eric, and I was telling him, I said, I can't do this anymore. I fucking can't do this. I got to find somewhere else to be. I'm miserable. I hate going to the office. For the first time in my life, I hate my job. Mm. I hated my bureaucracy. I hated the chief of operations who tried to just crush us every chance he got. Mm biggest dick you'd ever meet in your life so he probably hated his job too i, I don't know if no i think he was one of those people who loved his ego and loved having power over people he was yeah. one of those and and i was just like i gotta get the fuck out of here and i didn't know what i was gonna do but i decided i was gonna make a true attempt to retire so there's a, a young man i know very well he was an informant of mine years ago in baltimore me and another guy had gotten him with about 500 kilos of cocaine, and he became an informant. Um, but I developed a relationship with him beyond him just being an informant. He had not a number of life skills from the standpoint of tr real life, like like how to function in a regular society. He knew how to transport drugs with the best of them. And he was American. He was from Nogales, Arizona. Okay? But he was just about having a hell of a good time doing this and trying to live a different type of adventurous life. And at the time when we got him, he was a salesman, a very successful salesman for a furniture company in, in the United States. But he still was kind of just fucked up. His car was fucked up. He just didn't know how to do things legally. So we developed this relationship. I helped him get a bank account. I taught him how to get a 401k, how to put money away, how you had to think. And we just kind of became friends. Well, lo and behold, when he calls me, he tells me, he goes, you know, I think we got a story to tell together. I said, I think you're right, but I said, we don't have any contacts. And a story without contacts is just a story. A lot of people have stories, but unless you have a contact, the story means nothing. He goes, well, my cousin's a producer and writer in Hollywood. It's like, really? He goes, he'd love to talk to you. So I said, okay. So I called up his cousin and did a conference call with him. We had a long talk, and his cousin said, look, I'd like you to be a consultant on some films I'm doing. I said, okay, and we talked about fees and how that worked. And it's nothing you're going to get rich off of, but I was like, ah. It's nice. It's nice. And yeah. it's, and it's an, fun. It's fun. It's yeah. an, and it's another way to be creative. And he says, and I'd, al I'd also like you to help me create some movies or series. So I got involved in that a little bit. And I've been writing a lot, which I found funny because Mr. Donnellan always told me I'd be Going writing. Going back, right. right. So I, I kind of found it funny. So then I got a call from Wim. <laughs> Fucking Wim. <laughs> and he says, eh, why don't you come to work? You know, work with me. We're going to do this illicit wildlife trafficking. We have the skills. It'll work. 
So I sat back, and I was like, animals are innocents. And, you know, I, I hunt. I don't have a problem with doing a horned animal, okay? I eat the deer. If I was in South Africa, I'd eat the springbok. Mm-hmm. But I thought, to me, there's something about killing an elephant, killing a rhinoceros for their ivory, yeah. leaving the carcasses to go and just die, and to profiteer off of that. And especially profiteer for the most ridiculous motives because you want to be more virile. Oh, I, snorting ivory is going to prevent cancer? Kind of figure it out that scientifically it doesn't fucking work. Mm-hmm. So I said, now nah, I, I kind of like this idea now. And I was spending less time at DEA. I hadn't quite retired yet, but I was spending less time at DEA. I was starting to use my leave. So it was starting to kind of like people a little bit more again. Wim's idea kind of intrigued me. And I talked to my wife about it. She said, look, I think you should do it. I was like, really? I'm going to be traveling again. She goes, yeah. But it's freedom. And she says, you, you, you can't be confined working it'll never work for you you've been doing what you want especially the last 10 years working at sod mm-hmm. you've had tremendous freedom more i had freedom everywhere i went but each time i went somewhere i got more freedom and more freedom and more freedom and she's likely your most trusted and oldest advisor oh yeah she mm. knows me better than anybody and right. she there's no doubt in my mind so when she said that i was like okay and i called him i said i'm gonna take the job great he was coming to the united states he came and stayed with me for a while and we talked and we kind of worked out how we were going to do this right we decided i was going to come to kenya come over to africa and i was like yeah you'll come to south africa you'll love Grayton. you'll love franchuk it'll be wonderful right so we start out in nairobi and man was i in a dark place i was like what the fuck am I doing back here? Because like a tr- it's like a trigger. Oh yeah. We get off the pl- I get off the plane. I stand two hours in line to get my visa upon entry. I come out. Wim's running a little late on his plane, so I'm sitting there having a tusker in the little bar there, and I'm just sitting there thinking, well, how long is this gonna last? And I guess I'll be working in January for the state's attorney's office being an investigator. I, I can see this not going far, right? And then we meet with some people who he knew is there that are tied in with the illicit wildlife trafficking funding. I walked out of there. I was like, fucking government bureaucrats again. Okay. They're, they're all so nice and they're all being so delicate, but nobody wants to be straight. Nobody wants to be honest. And I'm just like, ah, this, is, this is fucking annoying me. I think Wim could sense he was losing me a little bit being up in Kenya. And he says, hey, what do you think about we leave early and head down to Cape Town? I said, I think that's a fucking good idea. We get down, got, got off the plane. I got there and I was like, oh, I can fucking breathe again. There was just order. Mm-hmm. It wasn't chaos. Yeah. And then we, we went and stayed in Franschhoek for a little bit. And I was like, oh, man, this is nice. Okay. 
And then last week we came up to Grayton and we went to Potter's and I got a nice beer and I had conversation with you and some other people and I just had a really good time. And I was like, this is enjoyable. Okay, maybe I can come back and do this. So that's where we are. That's how I got to Grayton. Wow. It's a long story for getting to Grayton, but that's how I got here. It's always a winding road getting to this place. Yeah. So that's what's so interesting to me. Yeah, so then I ended up here in Grayton. Grayton's neat because it kind of reminds me... It's the town I'm in outside uh, in Mount Airy, Maryland, which is 45 minutes northwest of Washington, D.C., um, is a small town similar to this. It's it's much it's more populated because of you're close to D.C. and Baltimore. But like Main Street is one street. Yeah. It's just kind of its own self-contained little area. Mm-hmm. Um, small towns are me. So I liked this. Yeah. I thought it was neat. I liked having beer at Old Potter's. That mm-hmm. was my kind of place. I yeah, could see, I love that place. Yeah, that would be my kind of place. Mm-hmm. I could see that. I use this. I use this term a lot on things like, I don't. I almost consider Potter's like Dickens-esque. You know, I'm a big Charles Dickens fan. Yeah. And, and and so. Everything here to me feels like it's out of a book or a movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're a character in yeah. that. Yes. Do you feel like there are particular traits that a DEA agent has or needs? A good one. A good one. Yes. Yes. In order to be effective and successful. Yes. He has to find a way to get it done. You have to be resourceful. Being personable is number two. And being single-minded in your focus is number three. Mm -hmm. But resourceful is the most important. And then what do you think about being a, a DEA officer that would surprise most people? Um, probably the inordinate amount of time we do pa- casework or paperwork. Mm-hmm. And probably the when they think we're flying by the seat of our pants, that the inordinate amount of time and planning that goes into that. And that no matter how much inordinate amount of time we do, it still gets fucked up. Um, there is always planning and there is always thought process going into it. But Murphy comes in. There's always things you don't account for. Right. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and people would be, I think, would be surprised how that happens. In, mm-hmm. in the case with when we were going after the mercenary team, we were trying to figure out a way to target everybody in the LaRue organization, okay, after we had locked up LaRue. Mm-hmm. It was such a monolith. It was so hard to wrap your head around. We kind of sat there one night and we went to a bar right around Christmas on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, New York. And we sat there and we just started ordering beers and sketching out our thoughts on napkins. And we got it. Just because we had been learning about this organization, learning for three months. We walked into the U.S. Attorney's Office the next day to two great prosecutors. One, she's soon to be a judge, um, Rachel Kovner, who is one of the most brilliant attorneys you'll ever meet, mm-hmm. one of the most brilliant legal minds. In fact, I think uh, she went to Stanford Law. She had the highest GPA in Stanford history, and she is uh, known as the Wizard of Palo Alto. And Mike Locker. Remember um, To Kill a Mockingbird, the movie? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He reminded me of Gregory Peck. And he was very, very much like that. Brilliant. You know, all of them up there are brilliant. But we were fortunate to get them. And Eric and I went in and we said, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. And we're putting all the pieces on the same chessboard to lock, to lock them up. 
They looked at us and they go, yeah, okay. <laughs> Let us know when you get there, which we ultimately did. And it's been, a, it's, it's a running joke amongst everybody now because we were able to lock up nine people, three continents, six hours. Something wow. along those lines. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of ups and downs along the way. And again, the planning, we, we were in Thailand, we were in Phuket, Thailand. And we're, we were kind of losing a little control of how something was was working. And we're like, how do we get this back? So building on the same process as before, I ordered six Singhais. <laughs> and Eric and I sat on a balcony of a hotel room we were working in because we had a, we had these hotel rooms. We would, we would um, rent hotel rooms to run our operations out of. And we sat there and we drank some beers and we sketched on napkins and we figured out the plan again. This episode of My Way has been brought to you by Focus Conservation Solutions, a nonprofit organization that supports governments to disrupt and dismantle wildlife trafficking networks, strengthen protected area management, and improve conservation and governance outcomes. With specific experience in law enforcement and field conservation, the team at FCS provides strategies and services to bring organized wildlife traffickers to justice and conserve nature for future generations. To find out more, go to www.focusedconservationsolutions.org. But I will tell you, one of the one of the things that got to me as I was thinking of when I was getting toward retiring and, and I had made the decision, and my oldest daughter, who uh, is 21, going to be 22, and she was getting ready to graduate Penn State, she goes, how are you feeling about retiring? I said, oh. I'm having a lot of ups and downs. I'm kind of emotional about it. I said, I didn't think I'd be emotional. Um, as much as I'm ready to go, I, I just didn't think I would have this emotion. And she said, I said, I kind of teared up when I walked out of the office one day, thinking of I'm leaving. You know, I love the current sack, Ray Donovan. Um, I like my ASAC George. You know, he was great, George Papadopoulos. Just, it was, it was t getting tough. And she said, well, Dad, it's, it's bound to get tough. She didn't mean anything by this. But here's what, but from the mouth of your children, right? Yeah. She said, but you've spent a lot more time with them over the last 10 years than you have with us. Now, I have a great relationship with my kids, but I, I couldn't help but sit back and think how much I missed. And is it worth it? Is it not worth it? I don't know. Mm. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I was selfish. Um, in my pursuit for what I was doing. Maybe it's just what I do. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But but it made me realize it, it, it was time to go. But based on who you are, do you think you could have done it any other way? Probably not. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't, you, 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 but you still look back and I go, there was a year where I missed, this was my first year when I was at BIU. I missed my daughter's, my youngest daughter's birthday. I missed my anniversary of May. I missed my wife's birthday of May. Mm -hmm. And I missed my oldest daughter's birthday in November. I hit them all. Yeah. I don't know. They were always understanding. And I and I yeah. laugh because of my oldest daughter's getting ready to get married in next May. And she's marrying a Maryland State police officer. Go figure. Go figure. Right? <laughs> Thank God he's a really good guy, and the only thing I tell people about him is he's really a fine young man. Well, that's good. Um, but to her, 
schedules like where people go, oh, that schedule. She's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> He's actually home. Right. It's it's all about perspective, yeah. right? It's all about what you're, it's all relative to what you are used to. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you feel like this work that you've done in your life, how do you feel like it has shaped your worldview? Oh, I would say a couple things. Number one, I thought I knew a lot. I realized how little I know. I realized how much I think U.S. congressmen and senators are full of shit and lie. I realize how much I don't trust public officials. I realize how much I don't trust bureaucrats. I realize that the only people I trust are the guys I work with. And I don't, I didn't, I, I realized I didn't do this job for the bosses. I do this job for what we're doing together as, as a unit. I do it because I think I'm doing the right thing. Um, I, I like to think at the end of the day, we got rid of some really bad people and put them in jail and made at least a little bit of a difference. Um, I used to, there was a book I loved, uh, Clear and Present Danger by Tom Clancy. Mm. And one of the quotes in that book was, every felony arrest meant a life was saved. So I like to hope that all the felony arrests that I made ended with somebody's life being saved in right. some way. I don't know if it did. I don't know if I made a difference, but I'd like to think I did. Could be a pie in the sky thinking. Gosh, there's so many more questions I want to ask you, but maybe we can sort of do it as a little bit of a lightning you round. You need to go back over one question. What? What they don't know about DEA agents and stuff like that. Mm. And my opinion is, is that people have no idea what type of investigations we work, how big they are, and how... How, yeah. I mean, like, we've done, we do stuff that no other agency can do. Well, like Victor Boot, Monsar Alcazar, Paul LaRue, Paul LaRue the know, Akashas, going into Venezuela, out the heads of the country that run it, doing, you know, the Venezuela stuff, the Gastelums, the, all these people who were, who were the ones supplying Chapo Guzman in Mexico. <laughs> Interesting. See, because it's, I, I feel like, especially because media is, shapes, so many of us, you know, sort mm -hmm. of regular folk. And so we think, well, let's go back. CIA. Let's, well, here's the thing. Let's 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 say this. Let's Snowden. Remember, like when Snowden was on the loose, they asked they said that there's one group of guys that could actually go find that guy. Nobody else in the whole country. Really? Yeah. They said us. Really? Yeah. yeah. Huh. Well, here's the thing. I would say this. <laughs> Every agency has its own marching orders. Okay. The CIA and the NSA and those places are different. They're intelligence. Okay. And if anybody really understands what that means is your intelligence apparatus should be in line with your policy apparatus, meaning your policy should be enhanced by the intelligence you're getting, which I think you can see from the last two administrations between the Obama administration and the um, uh, Trump administration that intelligence and policy don't match up. Mm. Okay, From a Department of Justice perspective, 
I will tell you that the FBI is 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 a weak arm. They are not proactive. They don't do proactive work. Now, if you have a terrorist event, they can dump more resources and do great reconstruction of what happened okay. than anybody in the world. But if you ask them to go target a particular person and arrest that person, you will have a long, lengthy, more than like failure. And the reason for that is, is their administrators are so risk adverse that even if you have great investigators, what about the image of the FBI? What, they're so centrally controlled. And so they lack, as I like to say, the testicular fortitude to do what needs to be done. <laughs> okay. um, if I'm hearing you correctly, they're more of a post-operative thing. Like, yeah. They, they're, they're, they, now, they like to portray that they're you know, out there on the cutting edge. Mm-hmm. They're not. And and most of it's not not even because the guys don't want to be. Uh-huh. It's because their administrators won't allow. Right. Okay. So your your thoughts on Comey? Joke. He he a man with a tremendous reputation who let it go straight down the toilet. Mm. He was a man who stood for principles mm. and then went for getting elected mm. or getting appointed again. You know, that's the problem with all these guys. They and and I don't just mean Comey. Go down the list of whoever you had. They really lack character. Mm-hmm. They don't do what's right. They do what is beneficial to them getting reelected. And Peter Strzok, 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 I can never say his last name. He should be put behind bars. If that was me or Wim Brown or one of the guys in my unit, yeah. they'd have locked us up. Really? Yeah. Oh, there's no doubt. Really? No doubt. He, he, he Because he's got this political democratic machine behind him, mm-hmm. that's why it's not happening. If yeah. that were a, a regular agent, we'd be arrested. And, and, and the problem right now is whether you like Trump or don't like Trump, he is shedding light on the fact that it's one party. And what everybody's pissed about is their constituents and their buddies aren't getting paid right now. I was talking to a woman about this yesterday. I said, look, regardless of how I feel about Trump, I think he's a loathsome human being, but he is a catalyst, like it or not, for everybody kind of waking up, shaking their head and going, what the fuck's going on here? Like, no matter which party you're in. You should be listening to what Ben Sass from Nebraska said today. Wim and I listened to it. It was about the Kavanaugh hearings. Uh-huh. And it is a tremendous, tremendous thing. And he talks about how Congress and the Senate have fucked up what their role is. Okay? And what they instead of creating laws, mm. they don't want to be unpopular. They want to get reelected. Mm-hmm. So they're not working together to make things happen. Right. Right? So they've pushed this on executive orders. The judiciary is supposed to be independent. They're not supposed to be policymakers. Okay, so what are your favorite things to do? Hunt, fish, garden, jar vegetables, cook, watch my kids ride, hang out with my wife at the farm. What are your biggest fears or concerns? I don't know that I have any. Because I think... uh, Whatever happens, you just got to improvise, adapt, and overcome. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't I don't know that I have any fears. Personally, I guess the only thing I would say is the health of my wife and kids. Mm-hmm. 
Is there something that you you want or you've always wanted but you still don't have? I would say that I'm getting and working toward is peace of mind. I I have always pushed and pushed and pushed for a variety of reasons. Part of it being my father dying at such a young age and him having been so successful in his job of trying to equate myself there to uh, trying to be a better father and husband because I haven't always been and to being okay with it all. That, yeah, I did okay. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm doing okay. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's, it's a process, but I would say peace of mind. But I think part of that is becoming also a healthy person. And, and what I mean by that is you look at yourself daily. You take corrective action on who you are. Was I a good person today? What could I have done better? How am I doing? Was I grateful for today? Because being grateful is a big deal. And then how can I make tomorrow better? And then really looking at all those things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what healthy people do. Mm -hmm. I'll say it takes a long time to get there. Because you can't be self-absorbed. You can't think what you're doing is the most important thing in the world. And, you know, so it's a process. Mm hmm it's a process. Do you have any rituals? Yeah. I get up every morning. I put my dogs out. I make my coffee. I pray. And I start my day. Okay. Achilles heel? What is it? I probably care more than people think I do. And I find that to be my Achilles heel because I'll dwell on things. And dwelling on things causes me to lose sleep. Does it bother you how much you dwell on things? Like, do yes. you say to yourself, why oh, am I dwelling on this yes. so much? Okay. Yes, 100%. Yeah. I guess part of it is like dwelling on it. Like, I really try to not care what people <laughs> But there's certain, I think everybody has those little insecurities. And I think like when you're when you do get to a point where you're completely healthy and you have that spiritual side going on, you wonder how people will react to that. And if you had the power to solve only one problem in the world, what would it be? Cancer. Because I think there's too many innocent people who have it. You know, anytime you can correct innocence. I mean, it's hard to say one thing. I would say that just because I think it's on a magnanimous scale. But, you know, you go down with the conservation. You go down with pedophilia. Again, it's all the loss of innocence. Mm -hmm. You know, when a drug dealer gets murdered, it's not innocence being lost. Right. So. It's a price of doing business. It's a price of doing business. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You made a choice. What do you want your girls to remember you for? God, I hope they remember I was around and was a decent dad. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I was. I think I've been in a different, not like other dads. Like they would sit there and say, you know, we always would laugh because they would. I, I would talk to informants on the phone, and they would say, "Who's that?" And I'd say, "Oh, Aunt Wanda. Aunt Wanda's a crackhead who used to call me all the time." Oh, who's that, Tracy? You know, Aunt Tracy. Well, what's Tracy? Don't worry about it. Tracy's a hooker. Okay. <laughs> they would laugh. They didn't grow up like normal kids in a lot of ways. They've they've 
hurt a lot. You know, my one daughter, I'll never forget when she was little, I was doing undercover at one time, and we were in the grocery store, the super fresh grocery store in Mount Airy, Maryland. My wife's in front of me, and I'm pushing the car, and she said, Daddy, do you have to go out tonight to buy drugs? You know, <laughs> you're like, what the shit? You know, but, but, you know, but that's... It's like, we need to tighten our seal here. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but, you know, so... An old police chief, Roy Gilmore, said to me one time, he says, you know, sometimes you're a better husband and father than you are a cop, and sometimes you're a better cop than you are a husband and father. He said, you just hope at the end that it balances out. And I guess that's what I hope. I hope it all kind of balances at the end. Well. You good? I think that I've pretty much covered it. It was such a pleasure having you. Cool. Thank you so much for... Cool. No, it was fun. For chatting with me. No, it was fun. It was fun. I had a good time. Fantastic. Maybe great will find it interesting. Thanks for joining me for the last part of my conversation with Tommy Sendrick. Guess what? This is the end of season one, and I'll be taking a short break before starting up with season two. What an amazing adventure this has been. I've interviewed nine people and had about 30 hours of conversation, from winemaking and wildlife to badgers and beers, painting and porno, enforcement and environment, racism and rhinos, schooling, and so much more. A huge thank you to John Michael Haig, Marshall Rehnquist, Catherine Painter, Dr. Colleen Begg, Dr. Michael Koch, Sam O'Keefe, Tatenda Chavara, Alistair Barnes, and Tommy Sindrick for taking the time to sit with me and share a piece of yourself with all of us. To everyone who has listened, thank you, thank you, thank you. If you have any ideas for people I should interview, please let me know. You can follow and contact me through the Podcast Cowgirl Facebook page, as well as Instagram and good old email, podcastcowgirl at gmail.com. Until we meet again. 